Let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, please, this morning as we finish this series in 1 Peter, would you speak to us through your word and work in us by your spirit that we would be people who stand firm in the true grace of God. Amen. Well, the year is about 300 AD, and a priest fleeing Roman persecution bumps into a pagan man named Alban in the English city of Verulamium. Alban takes the terrified priest into his home and soon converts to Christianity. But news gets out. Soldiers come. And when he won't return to the pagan religion, Alban is arrested and beheaded. And so the first recorded Christian in Britain becomes the first British Christian martyr. It wouldn't be for another few decades that the Emperor Constantine would come to power and Christianity would become the religion of the Roman Empire. Now his base was the city of Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, in the Roman region of Pontus. Perhaps you recognise that name. It's one of the places Peter writes this letter to, as we saw in chapter 1 verse 1, where Christians in the first century are facing fiery trials. But this region of Pontus would end up playing host to some of the most important church councils in history in Nicaea and Chalcedon. And from there, Christianity would spread to become a dominant force across Europe all the way up until the present day. Theologian Karen Jobes says that it is no stretch of the imagination to infer that these earliest Christians took the Apostle Peter's message to heart, rising to the challenge of leading the church through perilous times. And so most of us have grown up in Christian countries, where although there have been plenty of problems over the centuries, the suffering which Peter speaks about hasn't really been our daily experience. And even as we see the cultural winds changing and more of that sort of suffering coming our way, we still might struggle to imagine what it would be like. Perhaps, maybe just subconsciously, we can't really see it getting that bad. But it wasn't always that way. The first Christian in Britain was martyred just days after his conversion. And it could be that way again. Now, since halfway through chapter two or so, Peter has been giving specific instructions for how elect exiles are to live out their living hope in a hostile world. In chapter four, he spoke openly about the suffering Christians should expect, even as they seek to live good lives and speak with gentleness and respect. And so in this final chapter, Peter calls them and us to stand firm in the true grace of God, verse 12, no matter what happens. And these words continue to be relevant today as across the world and even here in Britain, Christians face hostility, persecution, suffering for their faith. At the end of chapter four, in verse 19, Peter said, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then we come to five verse one. So. And in this chapter, 
Peter tells us that to stand firm in the true grace of God, the church needs faithful shepherds, humble hearts, sober minds and living hope. Now we'll see that humility, that second point we're going to look at, really underscores everything in this chapter. But firstly, the church needs faithful shepherds. Verse one, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter says, if the people are going to entrust their souls to God through suffering, 4, four verse 19, they need tender shepherding. Now, Peter knows this himself, having previously buckled under the pressure when Jesus was arrested. In our first reading, we heard Jesus three times ask Peter, do you love me? Pointing back to the three times that Peter denied knowing Jesus. And then three times, Peter, Jesus commands Peter, feed my sheep. Peter has known the tender shepherding of Jesus in the face of his failure. And he has been commanded to go and shepherd God's people. So here, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, both literally Christ's sufferings and having suffered for following Jesus himself, Peter shepherds this flock and calls the elders among them to take on the baton. Now, you remember back in chapter two, Peter used some Old Testament imagery to describe these Christians as a new temple made up of living stones. And here we see that the new temple needs a new type of leader. In chapter four, last week, Peter alluded to Ezekiel nine, speaking about judgment beginning with God's households. And here again, Ezekiel is in mind, this time, chapter 34 of Ezekiel, where God condemns the shepherds of God's people who are feeding themselves and not the sheep. And so God's judgment will start at the sanctuary with them in Ezekiel 9, verse 6. And so because of them, the people of Israel were scattered and vulnerable. If these Christians are going to stand firm instead of being scattered and vulnerable, they need faithful shepherds a new type of leader for the new temple these verses also speak of leadership in culturally unrecognizable ways not as bullies but examples willing and eager now it can be easy to import some caricatures and a bit of chronological snobbery and think of everyone in the roman empire being a bit barbaric but it's probably not a stretch to say that leadership in that culture would have looked like punishing failure hard. Those in power would generally have got there by pushing others down and they'd stay there by doing the same. I'm sure many of us can think of examples of this type of leader in our own experience. 
not so in God's new temple. Leaders are to be marked by humility. They're to be examples to the flock as they shepherd them through suffering. In other words, the most important thing on the job description isn't leadership potential, but Christ-likeness. Not big personality, but humble servants. It is leadership, though. Peter calls them to exercise oversight. And so he exhorts them to lead and guide these elect exiles through this fiery trial towards the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, when birds fly together in a group, I'm sure you've seen seen it lots of times, they will very often do so in a V shape. So the bird at the front kind of takes the brunt and provides some respite for those behind. And the elder is called to be like that bird, to lead God's people on, looking ahead to the day when Christ, the chief shepherd, will appear. You see, even out, out even beyond the elder, having taken the brunt and paved the way to God for us, 3 verse 18, is the Lord Jesus. And so elders shepherd under the tender care of the chief shepherd. The tender care that Peter had himself so profoundly experienced. And in contrast to withering and falling human glory, chapter 1 verse 24, the faithful leader looks forward to receiving the unfading crown of glory from Jesus. And as elders shepherd faithfully, the rest of the church, you who are younger, as Peter says it, figuratively rather than literally probably, are to be subject to them. See, in order for the birds further back in the V to benefit, they need to fly in sync with the leader. And as elders follow Christ, so those who are younger should follow them. Humility marks not just the elders, but everyone in the new temple. And so Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And we'll pick that up in more depth now. So as well as faithful shepherds, the church needs humble hearts. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the key to living together as elect exiles. All of God's people are to clothe themselves with humility. If you remember back to chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, and chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, we saw there that the church is to be a refuge for weary exiles to come in from the storm. They should find there people who care for them, love them, want to serve them, not people looking to serve themselves or get a leg up. During the 2017 general election, one of the big stories was Tim Farron, who was constantly bombarded with questions about his Christian beliefs. In interview after interview, he tried and tried to talk about his party's political plans. 
But time and again, he was asked instead about his Christian beliefs about homosexuality. Now imagine Tim Farron, the Sunday after all those interviews. He's crawling into church, battered and bruised from all that the world's thrown at him. But what will greet him when he arrives? A barrage of political opinions? Or will it be a haven for him of sympathetic, compassionate, loving brothers and sisters? The church should be a place where believers don't have to face the same kind of insult and hostility that come from outside. A place where everyone clothes themselves with humility. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves towards one another. And at the same time, verse 6, towards God. And Peter says that we do that by casting all our anxieties on him. Now, sensitively, not wishing at all to make anyone feel condemned for being anxious. One thing that is going on in our hearts when we're anxious is a sort of lack of humility. You see, we feel anxious because things feel outside of our control and we're worried about what's going to happen. But there's a pride there which thinks we can or should be able to do everything on our own. But humility recognises that of course things are outside of our control. We're not infinite in knowledge or power. But we know the one who is. That phrase, mighty hand of God, appears only here in the New Testament. But it's used frequently to describe God's actions in saving his people from Egypt in the Exodus. And that same mighty God who parted the Red Sea is with you, even as you suffer. He is powerful enough to help and he wants to help. He cares for you. And although you suffer now, at the proper time, he will exalt you. So humble yourself before him and cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the church needs faithful shepherds, humble hearts, and thirdly, sober minds. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. At the moment, I'm reading the autobiography of the poet Robert Graves, titled Goodbye to All That. It focuses on his time as a soldier in World War I. And it's striking that in the trenches, often opposing soldiers would cease fire to let the opposition collect their wounded from no man's land overnight. It comes across that most soldiers on both sides weren't desperate to kill as many people as possible, at least in the early days. The famous 1914 Christmas truce is an example of that. But our enemy isn't like that. 
the devil is putting everything he has into taking down as many bricks from God's new temple as he can. He's prowling, roaring, seeking someone to devour. And so Christians must be alert, sober-minded, watchful. You need to keep your eyes peeled. Don't drop your guard. Get your head in the game. You have a dangerous enemy hunting you down. Now, it seems that was pretty clear to those Peter was writing to. And he reminds them in verse 9 that the sufferings they face are being experienced by other Christians throughout the world. They're not alone in the fight. We get a glimpse of that in the last few verses of Peter named Silvanus, who he writes through, the faithful brother. Mentions the church at Babylon, likely Rome in a reference to exile. They send greetings, as does Mark. Christians across the world are united together in suffering for Jesus. And the same is true today. Throughout the world, brothers and sisters, fellow elect exiles, are suffering. But they're not alone. Suffering is the shared experience of believers across the world. And so we stand firm in our faith together. The danger for us in Britain is maybe that we often feel as if it's all quiet on the Western Front. In the Screwtrick Letters, C.S. Lewis helpfully draws out the fact that one of the devil's tactics is to convince people that he doesn't even exist, that there is no enemy out to devour them. And I suspect that's a tactic we're too often in danger of falling for. The theologian Jamie Smith says that we're all secular now. In the West, even Christians are shaped by secular thinking. So we tend to live much of our day-to-day -day lives without giving much thought to spiritual things. Perhaps this is part of the issue, both when it comes to the devil and when it comes to casting our anxieties on God. We're just too used to thinking that what we see is what there is. So our natural instincts aren't shaped by knowing God is in control and he cares for us, or that there's an enemy out to get us. But if we're going to stand firm in the true grace of God, we need to wake up. We must be alert to resist our enemy. We're in the trenches and there's no Christmas ceasefire on the horizon. The devil is prowling, roaring, seeking someone to devour. So don't let your guard down. Stand against him, firm in your faith. Well, how do we do that? Just before his denials, Peter had failed to stay alert in the Garden of Gethsemane. Having just before that, boasted that he would never fall away no matter what happened. But in John 21, just before our first bit we had read for our first reading, as soon as Peter realises it's Jesus standing on the shore, he jumps out of the boat and swims, even though the boat is only about 100 yards away from the shore. And he throws himself into the tender arms of the chief shepherd, who gives grace and gives his Holy Spirit as we look to develop humble hearts and sober minds. Perhaps uh, one really practical way of thinking about this, maybe rather than waking up to the radio and checking our phones for the news, for Twitter or whatever, 
What if we woke up, threw ourselves out of bed, and ran into the tender arms of the chief shepherd, letting his word shape the way we interpret the world and praying to the God whose mighty hand controls all things. Finally, then, the church needs living hope. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter writes, knowing that he'll be killed for his faith. Jesus told him he would in John 21. But even so, all the way through this letter, since he first mentioned it in 1 verse 6, Peter has referred to sufferings as short-lived. Because in comparison to the eternal glory of Christ, they are. And all the way through, Peter has looked to lift his reader's eyes, to look ahead to their living hope. Chapter 1 verse 3. And so three times in these final verses, Peter talks about glory. The glory that's going to be revealed, verse 1. The unfading crown of glory, verse 4. And now the eternal glory of Christ. If we're going to keep going, entrusting our souls to our faithful creator, even as we suffer to, for following him, we need to keep our eyes on that future glory, our living hope, the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Chapter 3, 22. And soon his glory is going to be revealed to all the world. We only have to suffer for a little while. And then we will experience eternal glory. See, suffering is not a part of the world as God created it. And on the day when Christ is revealed, God will put all things right. He will restore. He will confirm you and strengthen you, drag you out of the trenches and bring you home. The new temple will be established, secured, free from any threat. But as we wait for that day to come, the day of glory, we stand together as elect exiles in the true grace of God. The suffering Peter's original readers faced and St. Alban faced, eventually led by one way or the other to Christianity dominating Europe for centuries. Today we see that tide turning back, but verse 11, still the dominion belongs to God forever and ever. So, as we finish this letter, let me make one suggestion to you. There's five chapters in 1 Peter that we've looked at. And so each day this week, why not take one chapter on your own as a family or with friends? Read it through again and make a note of four things. What Peter says about suffering. What Peter says about Jesus. What Peter says about the Christian's future hope. And then what his instructions are for living now as elect exiles. And like those early Christians, 
let's take the Apostle Peter's message to heart, rising to the challenge of leading the church through perilous times. Peter has written to the elect exiles scattered across the Roman Empire and to Christians throughout the ages, exhorting us and declaring the true grace of God. And with humble hearts, sober minds and living hope, we must stand firm in it until the day when our living hope becomes our living reality for all eternity. Let me pray. Gracious Father, please work in us by your spirit through your word such that we would keep our eyes fixed on that living hope, the glory that is about to be revealed. And so stand firm in the true grace of God. And Father, we pray for our leaders. Would they be faithful to you? Would we as a church clothe ourselves with humility that we might stand throughout whatever suffering comes, looking forward to the day when Jesus comes and takes us home. Amen.